We have reached 2 Samuel 17, so we will begin to look at the David narrative at that point this evening. Let's begin with asking the Lord's blessing upon his word. Our Father, we bow before you with amazement at the great skill of your inspired writers, realizing that you are the great narrator. The story is ultimately your own revelation and the disclosure of your wonderful royal majesty and kingly glory. It is majesty and glory and grace, even to a sinner like David. It is majesty and glory to us, sinners long after the line of David. And yet, those who treasure that grace as it came in great David's greater son. We grieve along with David at the trials that he must endure. We grieve for the sin that brought them upon him. And we pray, O Lord, that you encourage us to live out of the opposite vectors, out of the vectors of obedience and righteousness and justice. For that is the life that we have in your Son, our Savior. And most of all, we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you take your outline uh, and look at the uh, schematic there, it will help you understand the relationship of the council of Ahithophel and Hushai where I want to point out the proximate and remote vectors once again, a theme that we have been following uh, ever since 2 Samuel 11. With Ahithophel and Hushai remote from one another, but proximate to Absalom, who is in between the two of them in their respective counsel or advice. We ask ourselves then, does the narrator place these two erstwhile counselors at a distance? Does he set them apart in order to mirror God's decree to keep Absalom distant from the throne? Is there a narrative subplot underneath the way these Uh, Two counselors have found their uh, counseling uh, positioned or schematized. Now, when I talk about God's decree or his ordination, I point out that in verse 14 of this chapter, that for ordination and determinate for for knowledge of God is specifically mentioned as being behind the narrative and directing the events. Is it too much then to suspect that the disparate remoteness of these 
to erstwhile counselors is also reflective of the decree that folds Absalom into remoteness from the throne in Jerusalem. Well, be that as it may, the two counselors are kept apart in this narrative drama, even as their counsel is remote from one another, though proximate to their nemesis, to Absalom himself. If vectors may suggest divine ordering, if vectors may suggest divine sovereignty, if vectors may suggest divine foreordination, David's remoteness from Jerusalem is reflected in Absalom's remoteness from the advice which will retain proximity in Jerusalem for him. Ah, the secret hand of God and how he turns the schemes of men to naught. Well, what do you observe as you look at the narrative in chapter 17 of the space devoted to Ahithophel's remarks and the space devoted to Hushai's remarks. What do you observe by the amount of space that the narrator has devoted to the two? Ahithophel gets more space. Ahithophel speaks in what verses of chapter 17? Ahithophel? Oh, no, I, I mean, who shall? Yes, Ahithophel speaks in the first three verses. And Hushai speaks in verses 7 to 13, three verses for Ahithophel, seven verses for Hushai. The narrator grants Hushai twice as much narrative space. Why does he do it? Not just because it's a historic, a historically accurate reporting of what was said, but why does he quote Hushai with such deliberation because he remembers one of the underlying motifs of his book his twofold book first and second Samuel that goes all the way back to the prayer of Hannah in first Samuel chapter 2 the mighty he has brought low and the humble he has exalted. The reverse paradigm is playing itself out here in the mighty oracular counselor Ahithophel, who has been next to David for many years, and he will be brought low. And Hushai, this obscure archite, who is humble and dust on his head as he approaches David before he's sent back to Jerusalem, Hushai will be exalted. And so the underlying motif continues to run its course through the entire career of the narratives in First and Second Samuel. Our narrator has not forgot one of his major theological theses even here in this instance. All right, now if you look at verse 23 of chapter 16 for a moment. 
How does that particular verse relate to what's going on here in the opening of chapter 17? That verse says that Ahithophel is one who is as an oracle of God. So, what would you expect here in chapter 17? That he would prevail, correct? Okay, very good. That he would prevail. Now, is there anything else that suggests to you that he is going to prevail? Not just the fact that in 1623 he's been equated with an oracle of God or he gives oracular counsel, but is there anything else that suggests to you or clues you in that Ahithophel is likely to succeed? Okay? Excellent. Very good, Kay. She's going to the head of the class twice over. This is A++. All right. Well, he has already paid attention to Ahithophel, hasn't he? In the instance of David's concubine. So that erotic advice has been followed, and Absalom, of course, has received the satisfaction from it. So here is another instance in which we would expect that Ahithophel is going to satisfy Absalom. <clears throat> well, let's characterize Ahithophel's proposal. First of all, you will notice that it is based on a seek-and-destroy mission. A seek-and-destroy mission. First of all, verse 1, let's advance against David. Verse 2, let's engage to destroy him. Verse 3, let's return then with the loot or the booty or the results of our quick seek and destroy the enemy mission. Is it good advice? How do you know? Carol, you're nodding your head. How do you know it's good advice? Uh, It worked for David. It worked for David. Is it good advice from within this narrative? Ron, you're nodding your head. David's in disarray. David is in disarray. Uh, yeah, you're, you're judging post-hoke, propter-hoke. Uh, <clears throat> let's take a look at verse 4. Verse 4. Where Absalom seems to sign off on it, it sounds like it's good advice. The elders join with Absalom, sounds good to them. But then look at verse 14. God signs off on it, doesn't it? It is good good advice. In other words, Ahithophel has, with his seek and destroy mission, given excellent advice. Now, notice the tone of this advice in verse 1. You have a number of uh, verbs of action. The urgency with which Ahithophel is uh, trying to get Absalom to respond. Uh, Notice those verbs. Let us choose. Let us arise. Let us pursue. Let us urgently get about the business of destroying David. And and notice what he says in verse 2. Let us us strike David alone. 
Now, why only David? Why does Ahithophel suggest that they target David only? He doesn't have a drone to go after just one Taliban, does he? You know, but he wants one figure in his radar. Why? The leader, all right, he is the leader, but why? Yes, to bring the rest of David's supporters over to his side. Notice what he says, that they will flee and return to you. They will come back to you, Absalom, in verse 3. So the focus is to gather the remnant of David's uh, entourage into Absalom's camp and enlist more support, a greater number of soldiers and uh, allies of David in Absalom's cause. Do you hear an echo of another incident When one was slain, one was targeted. Do you hear in the background of the windows of Ahithophel's mind another story in which one person was the object of the death threat? No, that's looking too far ahead. Ahithophel isn't a prophet. All right, those of you in the back room, what are you muttering? Uriah, Uriah, exactly. Now, how do we tie that together? Remember that Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And in fact, he may be remembering what was done to his granddaughter's husband when David ordered his death and targeted him at Rabbah. And now, tit for tat, he is going to do the same thing to David. He is going to target him alone. Is it conceivable that this reinforces the fact that Ahithophel is involved with Absalom as a part of a long-term grudge match to get even with David for what he had done to his son's comrade, namely to Eliam's comrade Uriah at Rabbah. I can't answer that question finally, but the fact that he has the same kind of strategic goal that David had, namely going to get rid of that one man and eliminate him, and let the chips fall where they may after that occurs, is suggestive, reinforcing this point that Ahithophel enlists with Absalom as a way of getting back at David. All right, now, let's leave out verse 4 of these first four verses of chapter 17. Let's just omit verse 4 for a moment. And considering the first three verses, how do you think Absalom Here's Ahithophel's counsel, his advice.
What does he hear in every verse? Kill, kill David. Who will? I. Ron? I. I. What's he? What? What pronoun do you see in verse two? I. I again. What pronoun do you see in verse three? I. Who's the I? It's Ahithophel. Is it Absalom? No. So every every part of this advice is I, 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 I. Is Absalom sitting listening to this I, 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 I? What do you mean about I, I, I? What about me, 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 me? After all, this rebellion was about me. What 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 are you doing taking over for? All right. So. Absalom is being left out of this council. He's being left out of his this advice. And remember, Absalom is an egomaniac. He's got one big fat head. And this doesn't sound like it's stroking his ego, does it? All right, so let's keep that in the back of our minds. And let's go on to ask about Hushai. Is he present at this council of war when Ahithophel's proposal is delivered? No. How do you know, Ben? Good. Call Hushai in in verse 6, correct? Notice. And he is told what Ahithophel has said. So what is the issue before Hushai? Give us opinion. Uh, he's got to climb a higher mountain than that, doesn't he? What's the challenge before Hushai, Ben? To undermine Ahithophel's uh, To what? To undermine Ahithophel's To undermine Ahithophel's counsel. He's got to counter that proposal of Ahithophel, who has already been described as an oracle of God. Now, that's a pretty high mountain to climb. One whose plan of advice has already been signed off by Absalom and the elders in verse 4. He's walking into a stacked deck. And not only that, but... This one has already been accepted as a kosher counselor because Absalom has already acted upon his sage advice in the matter of the concubines. Now, three strikes and you're out, and he hasn't even had a chance to stand up at the plate yet. Hushai has more than Mount Everest to climb to overcome this council. All right, so let's take a look at Hushai's council. He begins in verse 7, very deftly disarming the opposition very deftly disarming Ahithophel with a backhanded compliment. 
Notice how he begins. This time, this time, but at other times, this time, his counsel is not good. But at other times, he is a good counselor. Now, the effect of this backhanded compliment is, of course, to arouse the curiosity of his audience. What do you mean, this oracle of God has not given us good counsel this time, though he's got a track record of good counsel on almost every occasion? And so his audience is curious at the end of verse 7, and he goes on at the opening of verse 8 to say, Moreover, moreover. Now, you're on the edge of your seat, those of you sitting around in this elder's chamber with the king, and here this guy says, moreover. Moreover what? You see, now you're almost off the edge of your seat. You're leaning for the next thing he's going to say. Your curiosity is not only aroused, but the pause, the pregnant pause there has got you hooked. His advice is usually good, but not this time. And moreover, moreover, and what does he do here? What does he do in verse 8? He begins to feed the pause with fear. He begins to feed that audience with the fear of David. And how does he do it? First of all... He draws Absalom into the discussion. Did Ahithophel draw Absalom into the discussion at all? No, he didn't. The I, I, I wouldn't allow Absalom in the door, door, door. So here is Hushai drawing Absalom in right from the outset. You know, Absalom, you know your father. Now, what's the opposite of to know? The opposite of to know is to be ignorant, to be a fool. But you know, Absalom, you're a wise man, Absalom. You see him stroking him, ever so subtly stroking Absalom, just exactly. You know your dad. You're wise enough to know what he's like, Absalom. And how does he persuade Absalom and the rest of them on the basis of what they know about David, to hesitate, to pause. Not only to take his moreover pause, but to pause from rushing out the gate of Jerusalem with their swords strapped on. How does he persuade them to hesitate? Look what he does. He pulls up the image of a bear robbed of her cubs. 
He pulls up the image of David's expert character or expert ability in waging war. He comments about how fierce David is, particularly in confrontation in war. The marginal reading of the Hebrew is literally bitter of soul. That is, he becomes enraged when he's cornered. And he mentions David's mighty men. David will have his mighty men with him. And finally, in verse 9, he alludes to the fact that David will have hidden himself in caves. What's Hushai doing? Hushai is cataloging a litany of the old David. The David who is heroic in his struggles with Saul and the enemies of Israel, particularly the Philistines. The formidable David, the once upon a time David, so that he pulls up images which will reflect upon the David of old. Does he do this in order to interface the present David facing Absalom as contrasted or compared with the David who faced Saul and Goliath and the Philistines and the other enemies of Israel before the Bathsheba incident. In other words, is Hushai using this litany as a mirror reflection for David's renewal, David's revival, David now acting like David, which is what you'll galvanize him into doing, Absalom, if you follow Ahithophel's counsel. Notice the bear robbed of her cubs. The very same image David uses in 1 Samuel 17, 36, when he is prepared to go out against Goliath. I delivered the flock from the bear. You're going to enrage him like the bears that were enraged when he slew them. The man expert in war. David described as a man expert in war. It's virtually a phrase lifted out of 1 Samuel 16, verse 18, where David, in being brought to Saul, is described as a man who is expert in war, a great warrior. A man fierce or bitter of soul, bitter of soul with his mighty men. Who did David recruit? In 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, men who were embittered about what Saul had done to them, some who had lost their homes, lost their livelihood, and they came to David. David is going to be like those mighty men as you approach him. Bitter of soul. A a king giving refuge to those who are uh, willing to... Uh, stand beside him and fight with him. 
for what is right and just. Hushai mentions his mighty men. David has had his mighty men with him ever since he recruited them. Ever since they came to him in his conflict with Saul in 1 Samuel 22, the list of those mighty men is ahead of us in 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. But they have been with David from the beginning, and they are still with him. He will have his mighty men with him, Absalom. And finally, he has hidden himself in caves, even as he did when he fled from Saul. 1 Samuel 23, verse 23 He took refuge in caves in order not to be found. Hushai then creates a formidable picture of David as one to be feared. And he lists five elements of David's character, which would recall to mind elements in David's own story for anyone that knew the story of David and his confrontation with Saul and the Philistines. It is suggestive that, in fact, the old David is awaking and that Hushai, in portraying David this way, is portraying not only the mirror of the old David, but also actuating that mirror bringing David to life again, so to speak, by this portrait, a portrait that is in measure accurately reflecting what is happening to David as he uh, runs to the east from Jerusalem. Now, Hushai has portrayed David as the very opposite of Ahithophel's weary and fatigued band in verse 2. He has portrayed him as one who will not be surprised. He will spend his night not sleeping with his men, but being on guard. He will be waiting and watching for any attempt to overtake him and capture him, let alone kill him. And what is worse, you won't even be able to find him, verse 9, because he will hide He will hide in all the places which he formerly used as haunts to evade Saul. You won't be able to dig him out of those hills. And even if you do, even if you do, verse 9, the people who follow Absalom, notice, the people who follow Absalom will be demoralized. Notice the slur he subtly lodges against Absalom's followers. They will not be like David's mighty men. They will be not as vigorous, vigilant, or as toughened as David's mighty men. They will be demoralized. Their hearts will melt. Which is exactly what happens if you're facing an enraged she-bear who is trying to protect her cubs, your heart begins to melt. And then you run for the hills, or you lay down and play dead and hope that she'll leave you alone. So, 
Absalom, you cannot risk the failure of a swift attack because your followers, your fickle followers, Absalom, will melt in their hearts when they come up against this formidable she-bear David and they will bolt and run. Now notice verse 10 contains a series of bracket stingers or bracket repetitions. Verse 8, you know, verse 10, all Israel knows. Verse 8, David's mighty men. Verse 10, David's mighty men. The bracket makes it absolutely certain that it must be right. You know, and all Israel knows, that David and his mighty men are a formidable opponent. And now verse 11, the hinge point of his speech. The pivot point in Hushai's counsel. There are 65 words in Hebrew before verse 11, verses 8 to 10, and there are 62 words in Hebrew after verse 11, verses 11 to 13. The pivot point is the shift in Hushai's speech from the negative, don't go after David in Ahithophel's way, verses 8 to 10, to the positive, do go after David in this way. And so we've reached, as I say, the hinge in Hushai's counsel. And how is Absalom advised to pursue? By delay. By delay. Which is precisely what David needs, is it not? Hushai knows that he needs to buy time. David needs to get across that Jordan River. He needs to put a barrier between himself and a fast-moving army of Absalom. And so, by flattery, he appeals to Absalom's vanity. Notice the marismus in verse 11. The marismus from Dan to Beersheba. From Dan, the northern boundary, to Beersheba, the southern boundary of Israel, Judah. The whole nation from north to south. This grandiose gathering of people from all over the kingdom. Absalom, you haven't had time to recruit everybody from the north to the south, so take some time to gather them all in. Get those recruits from the frontiers. A multitude like the sand on the seashore. Wow. Now there's a mob. Huh? There's a mob. There's a real crowd. It's bigger than an Olympic stadium full of screaming fans. Come on, Absalom. Go for the big time. And then he strokes him some more. Notice they will come to you. They will be gathered to you. Literally, the Hebrew is they will be gathered before your face. They will be gathered in your presence. 
Not like Ahithophel's council where you were left out and he was the one that was doing all the work. It was the I, 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 I of Ahithophel, not the you, 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 you of Absalom. But these will be gathered in front of your face, this whole mob, this whole crowd, from Dan to Beersheba. They'll be coming with their knapsacks and their swords from all over the kingdom. Just think, you get to lead this entourage, this mighty army. Not even David could raise an army this big. And Absalom, oh, he loves the strokes. He just loves the strokes. Because, of course, he wanted to be the American or the Jerusalem idol before the TV series. He just loves the attention. Verse 12, another image. Notice the use of picture imagery that Hushai uses, the bear and his cubs, the man hiding in the cracks of the rocks or the caves of the rock that will come upon him like the dew, will cover him like the dew, will cover him with destruction so that there will be no one left. Against again, you see what he's done? He's completely contradicted Ahithophel, who leaves everyone except David. But Hushai says, nobody will be left. We'll kill them all. There'll be blood flowing down to the Jordan. You'll get them all, Absalom. Oh, does Absalom love bloodletting? Doesn't he love bloodletting? He loves the murder people. Amnon, his father, this really... This really turns Absalom on. You're talking my language, Hushai. It's a feeding frenzy. We'll go get them all. Appeals to Absalom's innate fury and wrath, his innate disposition to violence and to shed blood. He knows exactly how to stroke him at a place <clears throat> where Absalom will pause. And then verse 13. But even if, even if by some amazing providence he eludes us and takes refuge in some city, suppose he retreats from this huge army and we chase him into a corner of some obscure little village or city, we'll take ropes and we'll tear it. Here's this picture again. Absalom can see it. You see all those ropes tied onto the walls of that town. They pull on one brick, one block, run down after another, and there's David left, standing there, exposed to this mighty army of Absalom. Oh, I like that picture, says Absalom. That'll make a great movie. Maybe we can even win an Academy Award with that film. Piece by piece. Yes, we'll get them. We'll get them if we have to tear rock from rock to get them. Yeah, I like this counsel. And Hushai reverses the paradigm. Notice verse 7. Counsel of Ahithophel is not good. Verse 14. Council of Ahithophel was good, but the not good 
conclusion has reversed the good counsel. And the narrator places this bracket around Hushai's counsel in order to demonstrate that this is precisely what David needed. David needed a counsel that would reverse the good counsel of Ahithophel. To take that good advice and make it not good advice. And to elevate the not good advice to the level of good advice, ironically, or in reverse. And that 14th verse also demonstrates that God had determined that Hushai should prevail. Whereas Bishop Joseph Hall said, great 17th century Anglican bishop, in his remarkable contemplations on the Old and New Testament, yes, still in print and remarkable, worth reading, Absalom, Hushai shall prevail with Absalom, says Bishop Hall, that the treason of Absalom may not prevail. Yes, Joseph Hall gets the irony of the reversal, and he even expresses it in terms of reverse irony. That's good exegesis as well as good literary penetration. 17th century mind, no less. Hmm? Hmm? Very interesting. All right, now in 15 to 23, David's espionage network goes into gear. Notice the little brackets we have here in verse 16. Tell David in verse 21, David was told. In verse 16, it is night. He will spend the night in verse 22. It is dawn. The night is past. Now, in between this larger bracket of David's uh, spies, we have verse 20, where the woman hides Ahimaaz and uh, Jonathan and covers them over. And notice who is protected by the woman. Verse verse 20, I'm sorry, verse, uh, yes, verse 20. Servants of Absalom came to the woman. Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they've crossed the brook of the water. Woman, Ahimaaz and Jonathan and the woman. As she protects them, actually, so she surrounds them, literarily. The sandwich places them between her in the narrative, because that's what she's done. She's placed them under her protection. 
A couple of comments on the geographical <clears throat> indications. <clears throat> Uh, in verse 17, you have a little village called Enrogel. It's east of Jerusalem somewhere, but no one knows where it is. Even today, it's not been identified. In verse 18, we have uh, this house that the uh, lads come to, a man of Bahurim. Man of Bahurim. We've had this before. Do any of you remember where we came to Bahurim before? When David was going out of Jerusalem, he went eastward to Bahurim, actually went across the Kidron up the Mount of Olives and then to Bahurim. You can see it on your map. But in Bahurim, he met one named Shimei. And what was Shimei doing to David as he was going through Bahurim? He was cursing him. He was cursing him. So here we have a reversal of David's fortunes in Bahurim, someone who is protecting David's uh, spies, David's friends, David's allies. We have a small reversal of David's downward spiral here as he's being chased out of Jerusalem and cursed by Shimei. Here, a chapter later, he is being, uh, his, his uh, servants are being protected and David's life is going to be preserved on the upswing. Verses 21 and 22, David passes over the remote and proximate vectors once again enter the narrator's account. David places a distance between himself and Absalom. He places a barrier between himself and Absalom. He places the Jordan River between himself and Absalom. You can see from your map where he crosses over to the east side. And not only does he put a distance and a river barrier between himself and Absalom, but he goes over to the east side for another reason. Chapter 18, verse 8. Chapter 18, verse 8. Ben? Forest. What did this forest potentially offer? Uh, protection. Protection and more than that. Hiding place. More than that. Well, it says the forest killed more. Than A death trap. A death trap. And David knows it because he had, of course, been across the Jordan. He knew what was over there. And even today, the banks of the Jordan, as they weave their way from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, they flow through a territory which is virtually impenetrable, thicker than some jungles, that heavily overgrown with brush. It is extremely treacherous. 
Even today, it is extremely treacherous. And in David's day, it would devour the man who got lost in it. So, David wants to get into that region where he can use even the creation as his ally. Get over Transjordan. Get over to the east bank. Use all that I can use in order to narrow the odds. All right, verse 23. What do you notice about Ahithophel's suicide? You watch the news today? You listen to the news today? What do you know about today's suicide? It was carefully laid out, wasn't it? Deliberate and intentional, wasn't it? Now, granted, he thought his suicide was going to kill him a few IRS people, if not a few others, but... Here we have Ahithophel deliberately planning his self-murder. He lays out his house in order, and then he strangles himself or hangs himself. Why does the narrator include this somewhat ugly reference to suicide? Oh, you say it rounds off the narrative and character of Ahithophel. Yes, it does. But that's easy. That's easy. Of course it's closure to the narrative of Ahithophel. But we are dealing with a reverse paradigm, aren't we? We are dealing with the fact that David's life is under the threat of death. And his imminent death sentence needs to be reversed with life. And how is that reversal accomplished? in part by the death of Ahithophel, which means life for David. The reverse paradigm is even caught in the conclusion of Ahithophel's life because his self-murder is the self-preservation of David in the final analysis. The reversal is poignant. It is poignant indeed. Well, as we step back from this chapter and take the biblical theological look at Hushai's counsel, 
It is true that his counsel succeeds in sparing David, sparing the protological David, so that David's eschatological son may appear. But David's eschatological son is not spared. He is not spared. And he is not spared so that his, that is, great David's greater son, his sons and daughters may be spared. He is not spared so that his children, the heirs of his kingdom, may be spared. This one, not spared exile and worse, death, banishment from the dwelling place of his father, In the temporal Jerusalem, this one spares those deserving of death, those deserving banishment from the dwelling place of his father in heaven, the eschatological Jerusalem. And all of this, all of this reversal that does not Spare the eschatological David, all of it, according to the determinate foreknowledge and plan of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel in order that the Lord might bring calamity upon Absalom. 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. But note the pattern of reversal. For what is reversed in David's exile from Jerusalem must be reversed. And what is reversed in our cosmic exile from the new Jerusalem must be reversed, but we will never never be able to accomplish it in ourselves. But Jesus does reverse the reversal by taking the very ignominy of our curse upon himself in order to spare us. He who himself was not spared. You must begin to read your Bible in terms of this poignant and profound pattern of reversal that occurs through the history of redemption, prefigured, prophesied, poetically rehearsed. It is there as the foundational structure of the history of redemption. And it is even here in the reversal of the counsel of Ahithophel by the counsel of Hushai. The reverse paradigm dominates the scriptures.
reading. All right, now we're up to verse 24 of chapter 17. And I want to point out uh, what is called an anaphora, a structural paradigm or structural pattern. And I'll describe what it is after I give you the parameters here in the text. In verse 24, you'll notice the phrase, David came to Mahanaim. And then in verse 27, David had come to Mahanaim. Now the phrase, David came to Mahanaim, David had come to Mahanaim is followed by a descriptive section. So after that phrase in verse 24, we have verses 25 and 26 describing something that's subsequent to his coming to Mahanaim. And then we go back to Mahanaim in verse 26, and we have another descriptive section of uh, the rest of 27 and then 28 and 29. Now this is called an anaphora, in which we have a repetition at the beginning of a narrative subunit. So David had come to Mahanaim in verse 24, and then the subunit in 25 and 26, and then David had come to Mahanaim again in 27, and the subunit in verses 28 and 29 and part of 27. The repetition of the same phrase at the beginning of successive narrative units is called an anaphora. All right, so much for the technical vocabulary of what is uh, here in front of us structurally. Let's ask about the relationship between these two units. In other words, when David came to Mahanaim in verse 24, what is going on in verses 25 and 26? And when David had come to Mahanaim in verse 27, what's going on in the rest of 27, 28, and 29? What do we have here? We have flashbacks. We have flashbacks. Okay, when David came to Mahanaim in verse 24, you then learn something about what had happened to Amasa and Absalom. By, by Absalom, what had happened to Amasa and Joab, in fact. Now, in verse 27, when uh, David had come to Mahanaim, then you learn who had met him as he came over the Jordan River, who had come to his assistance uh, as he came to the Transjordan and joined him in Mahanaim. Now, <clears throat> since these are both kind of flashback paradigms or devices. Uh, Let's take a look at how the narrator uh, sets up a foreshadowing uh, feature here with this uh, anaphora. Let's take a look at verses 24 and 27. And let's notice who is listed there. chief character in those two verses is David. Okay, David came and David had come. Now, notice verse 25. 
In verse 25, characters that are featured are Absalom and Amasa. Then in verse 26, we have Israel and Absalom mentioned. Now, why does the narrator structure this anaphora this way? Well, notice... that David surrounds Absalom and Amasa and Absalom and Israel. This anaphora device is foreshadowing David's victory. It's foreshadowing David surrounding the army of Absalom, Amasa, and those in Israel that follow them on the Transjordanian side. So this little anaphora bracket is actually a uh, dramatic encircling of the prospect of David's victory over Absalom, Amasa, and his followers. That's one way of looking at the relationship uh, of this structural anaphora, it is a foreshadowing of David's encircling conquest and triumph over his adversary. All right. Now, there's another way to look at this. And we'll have to expand this a little bit in order to get uh, this pattern In verse 24, we notice, as we pointed out when we uh, described the anaphora, David comes to Mahanaim. So David plus Mahanaim in terms of location. That is duplicated in verse 27. David plus Mahanaim. All right. So... What's coming to a climax at Mahanaim? Well, Absalom and Israel is the next uh, referent in verse 24. And then Amasa and Joab in verse 25... And that's duplicated in verse 25, Amasa and Joab. And then in verse 26, we have Absalom and Israel again. These are the opponents of David in the conflict over the uh, kingdom, over the throne. 
And these are the conflicting cousins at the center of the conflict. This is the conflicting nemesis. These are the conflicting cousins. And David is the bracket around them all at Mahanaim. So what we have here is a foreshadowing of the conflict itself, not just the triumph of David, but here the framing of David around the warring or conflicting parties. Father and son here, father and son here in conflict, balanced. Cousins in conflict here, balanced. The conflict paradigm involves the family of the royal house. Once again, the sword shall not depart from your house. Nathan's prophecy in chapter 11. And here it is structurally very clear in this uh, paradigmatic uh, conflict framing that the narrator provides. Now, uh, as you look at your map, you can see how this all flows out geographically. (coughs) Verse 27 gives us something new and something we've had before. As you look at verse 27, is there any name there that you remember from a previous incident? Ling, I see your head bobbing back there. This is the first time that we meet Barzillai, okay? So he is a new uh, character. Uh, Shovi is also a new character, but as Ling points out, he is attached to the nation of the Ammonites. And as you notice from your map, you can see that uh, all of these individuals are actually coming from the Transjordanian side and meeting David at Mahanaim, and we've had Mahanaim before, when or where or what incident? <clears throat> Mahanaim is the capital city of Ishbosheth. And it is there that for nearly seven years he resists David as king of the Cisjordan, the other side of the Jordan. And the struggle between uh, the house of David and the house of Saul, succeeded by Ishbosheth and, of course, Abner, Ishbosheth's uh, general, in uh, leading uh, that conflict until uh, he is insulted by Ishbosheth and then uh, joins David by making a covenant 
with him only to be murdered by Joab. All right, so the interesting name here that reappears is uh, Machir, where Mephibosheth was being housed. And the fact that Machir comes to welcome David uh, suggests that there is a positive uh, reflection upon someone in Mephibosheth's arena coming to David's aid here. Now, this is a minor point, but I don't think it's a, a incidental point. I think the mention of this individual uh, in positively reinforcing David as he comes across the Jordan reflects positively upon Mephibosheth and why Mephibosheth has not come to meet David uh, either before or after the Jordan. Now, I'll reserve that for discussion next week when we take a look at Mephibosheth's audience before David as he returns. But nonetheless, I want you to note here a a footnote suggestion that there's a positive character here who has had some association with Mephibosheth who comes to help assist David in his exile. Now, once again, because David has taken refuge in Mahanaim, which was the center of Ishboseth's kingdom, Transjordanian kingdom, we find a little ascending arrow here or a little upward uh, spike in uh, David's career where David is receiving comfort and aid from those who were formerly his enemies or at least in a region which was formerly hostile to him. I don't want to neglect the fact that David had uh, made that part of his kingdom, uh, 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 made that region part of the expansion of his kingdom when he moved the borders of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, uh, that expansion we read earlier in 2 Samuel. So, indeed, the the region has been pacified and has basically been in David's uh, camp But uh, here he actually gets positive reinforcement, we might say, uh, by these individuals who come to provide him with food and uh, and bedding and uh, all of those things that that uh, one would know would need when he were on if he were on the run. Three figures here, three figures who come to bring provisions on the Transjordanian side, just as there were three figures who came to give aid to David on the Cisjordanian side as he left uh, Jerusalem, the most significant one being Ziba, whom we will meet once again uh, in the future. So in chapter 18, we move from two camps in the Transjordan, chapter 17, verses 24 to 29, to two camps engaged in battle in the Transjordan, chapter 18, verses 6 to 8. All right, so we've got the setting, including this anaphora structural pattern in chapter 17. The two camps are there on the Transjordanian side, and they are going to engage in battle in verses 6 to 8 of the 18th chapter. But what happens in between the uh, placement and the engagement? 
In between is this scene with David and his troops sandwiched in between the action in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 18. So, notice, the Transjordanian location of of, uh, the action and the Transjordanian action in progress and in between David and his troops at Mahanaim. Now, this is also a foreshadowing device. In verse 2, you notice that David divides his people into thirds, one-third under Abishai, one-third under Joab, and one-third under Ittai. You may ask, why is it that he divides his troops into three equal parts? Well, that seems to have been a military tactic. goes all the way back to Saul in 1 Samuel 11, verse 11, where Saul divided his Israelite army into three sections. It also goes back to the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 17, the Philistines divide their troops into three sections. It appears, therefore, to be a common logistical tactic. You divide your forces into segments of three and place a commander in charge of each of the three divisions. Now, you'll notice from your map, particularly the lower map, you can see graphically this threefold division. It creates, you'll notice, the kind of little circle uh, of three arrows. Uh, It creates a pincer movement. So that you've got on the left a third of your army, in the center a third of your army, on the right a third of your army, and you move uh, on uh, in concert uh, onto the field against the enemy, and you come at the enemy uh, from the flanks of the pincer and from the center by sucking them in to the middle and then squeezing them off from the sides. Uh, so here you see another uh, explanation in the uh, map itself of the geography of the threefold division, uh, David dividing his army in order to squeeze Absalom and his troops in the vice of the pincer. Well, why? Why do this in the first place? Why is David devising strategy here in verse 2 of chapter 18 in advance of going to the field or his troops going to the field to confront Absalom's army. Why does he do it? Take a look at verse 7. Twenty thousand died from whose army? Absalom's army. So Absalom's army loses twenty thousand men. How many men does David have? 
How many thousand? Verse 3. All right, now, allowing for hyperbole there, notice that David's troops say that he is of more value than 10,000. And it is 20,000 that Absalom loses. So David is conceivably outnumbered two to one. At least two to one. So that his dividing his troops into three units is a way of increasing the power of his army, which is outnumbered. All right. We haven't got enough numbers to take them on a full onslaught. So what we've got to do is we've got to outflank them. We've got to wear them down from the edges and from the center. So he takes advantage of his military weakness and turns it into a strength by dividing his army into three divisions. Okay, then we'll take them from three sides. At least two to one, perhaps even greater. But these two numbers in the text suggest that one of the reasons David does this is that he was outnumbered by Absalom's recruiting that bunch from Dan to Beersheba. 20,000 plus. Because when the battle's over, Israel will flee. What's left of Absalom's army will flee. So he had more than 20,000 because 20,000 did die on that day. Verse 4 of chapter 18 where is David? In the city? Where in the city? Okay. He's at the gate. What do you do at the gate? You should govern. You govern at the gate. What else do you do at the gate? What's coming in and going out? <laughs> March out. Pardon? March out. March out. No. Well, what else? What else do you do at the gate? <clears throat> Wait for news. Wait for news. No. What else do you do at the gate? What happens at the gate in Ruth chapter four when Boaz comes to the gate? Who else comes to the gate in Ruth chapter four with Boaz? The elders. the elders come to the gate. Why do the elders come to the gate? Meeting place. Judgment, exactly. It's where justice is administered, at the gate in the presence of the elders. So here is David at the gate, at the place of justice. Now, granted, he's not there to administer justice, but he's come to the place where justice is administered, and justice is going to be administered to Absalom in the final analysis. But who had come to the gate to say, I will administer justice? Carol? Absalom. Absalom in chapter 15 had come to the gate to say, I will listen to your grievances. I will listen to your cases of injustice. I will give you justice if only I were there. Remember Absalom? And now David, who wasn't at the gate when Absalom was doing that on and off for seven years. Now David is finally at the gate. Finally at the place where he ought to be. Yes, he's reviewing his troops as they prepare to go out, but he's also saying to his troops, I'm behaving like a king, finally. 
I'm taking my place where I belong. And his troops march before him in review because of their esteem for him and their loyalty to him. And they are even so loyal to him that they will not allow him to risk his life on the field with them. They will go in his place. In contrast, in contrast, notice with Absalom, who is on the field with his troops. Notice the ego that drives Absalom once more. At the head of his army, more or less, with Amasa at his right arm, perhaps, but nonetheless, Absalom in the thick of it. David protected by his troops and saved from the battlefield by his loyal soldiers. Verse 5. Verse 5. And by the way, soldiers, as you leave, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to bring this pup to justice. I want you to treat him like a spoiled brat, like I've always treated him. Don't deal harshly with Absalom. What is it with David? What is it with David that he cannot judge righteous judgment? That when it comes to his children, all of a sudden what is right is thrown out the window and they have to be coddled regardless of what evil or wrong they've done. They've got to be protected, justified. They've got to be defended regardless of whether they're murderers or not. Because they're my children, my children, and they get free passes, not justice, not what is right, not what is required by the law. No, they get special privileges because they're my kids. Oh, well, we don't run the Reformed churches like this. Oh, we don't? Oh, we don't? We're as bad as the broad evangelical churches when it comes to special interests for special families in the Reformed churches. And we don't administer justice equitably and impartially. We do allow favors to be bought and given. And when we do it, we're just like David. 
And when we do it, the Absaloms in our congregations are going to rise up and devour us. Sooner or later, those brat kids are going to destroy the church. If you don't love them enough to discipline them and tell them, you did something wrong, and I, as your mother and father, are going to the session and tell them you did something wrong, and then we're going to go to the courts if it's a public crime, because I'm going to accuse you before the justice. Horror of horrors? You mean you're going to put your kid in front of the law? In front of the elders? That's exactly what you're going to do, because you took a vow that you would raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You didn't raise them to coddle them. You didn't raise them to be Absaloms. You raised them to be held to the same standard of righteousness and justice that you would hold Bill Clinton to? Huh? A Hollywood movie star, too? Tiger Woods, too? Oh, well, they're rotten, but not my kids. I don't care if they've been sleeping around or not, not my kids. What hypocrisy. What utter hypocrisy, and your kids know it. Your kids know it. They know that you don't stand for anything when, they let, when you let them get away with that. So here's David at the gate saying the very same thing he'd been saying about Absalom ever since Amnon. And here are these troops marching out to defend him and to save his head. And he says, take it easy with Absalom so he can take off my head when he comes back. In other words, hit me again, kid. Hit me again. This is unjust mercy. Unjust mercy. Sooner or later, Absalom has to face justice. And on the other side of justice, find mercy. Not get mercy instead of justice. What is right must be done. And then you plead for mercy after having paid what is due. For in, the world, for in the world of temporal consequences, temporal justice must be satisfied or else it will devour the whole culture. And you're watching it devour it. You're watching children who are not disciplined or restrained, who are not treated with justice and fairness, devour the system. You're watching it crumble right before your eyes. Arrogant, defiant, undisciplined children who rule their homes and control their parents, even their Christian parents. It is Absalom Rita Vivas. And David will rue the day that he did not restrain Absalom and deal with him by judging righteous judgment.
Absalom has been nothing more than cruel to his father, cruel to his father's concubines, cruel to his stepbrother, and he is going to be cruel to 20,000 dead men. You want to take that on your conscience to your grave? 20,000 dead men? In other words, the consequences of David not restraining Absalom are 20,000 corpses. You don't deal with evil, and evil will leave a path of destruction after you don't deal with it. And David, David is faced with it when these soldiers come back and tell the tale. Oh, Dennison, you're too harsh, you're too tough, you're too strict. You've heard of tough love, haven't you? You've heard of Dobson's tough love, haven't you? He's right. He's right. And if you don't administer it, then he's right about the consequences, too. He's right enough, even though he's not reformed. He's right enough about it because it's common sense. It is common sense. You indulge a child who controls you and does what is wrong, and you do not restrain, correct, or call them to account, and sooner or later, that child will make you pay. It is one of the inexorable laws of God's justice. What you sow, you shall reap. Yes, even children in Christian homes. And therefore, beware that you manufacture little Absaloms. Beware, for they will rise up to haunt you. Now, he pointed out verse 8 before, namely this thick forest, but notice verse 6. There's a bracket around this thick forest, and in between the forest in verse 6 and the forest in verse 8 are the 20,000 sandwiched dead men in verse 7. The very creation, the very creation and the created order curses him who cursed his father. It was a sin, a capital crime to curse your parents in the Levitical law. And so if David won't deal with him, the created order will. God will use the creation in order to execute Absalom for cursing his dad. And with him, all those fighting against the righteous king. Now, in verses 6 to 8, we have another flashback because you see the battle completed before your eyes or the record of the completion of the battle. And then verses 9 to 18 go on to tell how the battle unfolds, giving its discrete incidents. So you have a summary of the conclusion 
of this uh, conflict in verses 6 to 8. And then in verses 9 to 18, you go back over that battle as it uh, folds, as it unfolds in front of you. And notice the emphasis in verse 7 upon the great defeat. In verse 9, the great oak. In verse 17, the great pit. And again in verse 17, the great cairn. This is a great battle. And the fourfold repetition of the Hebrew word gadol, which means great or mighty, is an emphatic underscoring of how significant this great battle was. Verse 9, the great oak holds the great egomaniac. Now you'll notice that the verse actually says that his head caught fast in the oak. Many pictures or representations of this event in Christian art show him swinging by his hair, that that great head of hair, seven pounds worth that he shaved once a year, that great head of hair got tangled up in the oak branches, and so he was lifted up off of his mule as he was dashing, and his hair was flying, and, you know, it got tangled, and there he is, swinging, dangling between heaven and earth. And yet the text says that his head was caught. So it's more the image of he rides right into one of these Y branches in the oak tree. And as he is riding and doesn't see it coming, that Y branch squeezes his neck and lifts him right up off the mule as the mule runs out from under him. And there he is dangling between heaven and earth. So I prefer the fact that it was his head that was caught in the branch, not his hair. I'm not minimizing the glory of his vaunted uh, egocentric hairdo, but nonetheless, I don't think he was done in by his due. <laughs> now, it holds him between heaven and earth. In other words, he's a man with a foot in neither heaven nor earth. He's a nowhere man. He's a man abandoned by earth and heaven, suspended between life and death. And as he swings there helplessly, Joab is told by a messenger in verse 10 that he saw it. He saw Joab suspended, hanging from the oak. And then in verse 11, Joab says, you saw him, and now you, the reader, see him. Now you see him hanging from the oak, swinging between heaven and earth. And Joab dispatches his soldier to finish him off, just as Joab dispatches the message to finish off Uriah. Because on the battlefield, Joab doesn't want to be seen with his sword sticking in the victim, whether it's Uriah or Absalom. But in private, he's happy to have his sword sticking in the victim, whether it's Abner or Amasa. But no, when there's public, public uh, witnesses, Joab's got somebody else to do his dirty work. But this soldier won't do it. 
And so we have a contrast that the narrator creates between the character of the soldier who was obedient to his king and disobedient to his commander and the character of Joab who is disobedient to his king and obedient to himself. And notice verse 13. That soldier knows something about Joab's character. In other words, this soldier gives us a little insight into Joab's character as a commander on the battlefield leading men into conflict. This soldier says, I know you, Joab. You would have hung me out to dry. If I go kill Absalom, you're going to suspend me between heaven. I know your tactics. I know the kind of man you are. I'm not going to do it because David will hear about it. David knows everything. And I don't care if you are the commander in chief. I ain't going to kill him because the king who is over you said don't kill him. And how many of those soldiers at Rabah who pulled back from Uriah should have said the same thing to Joab? I'm not going to kill him, and I'm not going to leave him there to die. I know what you're up to, Joab. You're going to get rid of him, and I'm not going to be a part of it. I don't care if you are the commander-in-chief. I don't care if he even got a message from the king himself. I'll go over both of your heads. I'll go to God, who says, Thou shalt not kill even on a battlefield. You don't murder somebody on a battlefield. In self-defense, yes. In national defense, yes. But you don't go murder innocent people in cold blood. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it there. I'm not going to do it here. The soldier who knows what God requires, what the king requires, what the higher authority requires is not going to obey the sinful temptation to break that commandment. But impetuous Joab, verse 14, impetuous Joab won't waste time. Does he kill Absalom? He helps it along. Yes, he does. Three darts worth, he helps it along. Through the heart, no less, he helps it along. Now, whether heart here means literally his, you know, pericardial sac, or whether it means the region of the heart in the chest, okay? That's hard to tell because the Hebrew's not that anatomically specific. But nonetheless, Absalom doesn't finish him off. Verse 15 is administered by the coup de grace from his armor bearers. It's almost as if Absalom said, okay, I made it possible he's not going to come down, all right? So, you can have a, you can have your chance at you know just stabbing him to death. Go after him, you ten boys or armor bearers. This guy's a brute. He's a brute. He's a sadistic brute. Now, I'm not suggesting that Absalom necessarily deserves anything else in the nature of the case, but my point is. That uh, you know, this, this is uh, this is like machine gun Kelly, only it's being done with with uh, swords and spears. 
Now, the event in, in verse 17 is the burial of uh, Absalom and the parting act of Absalom himself in verse 18 is another flashback with this stunning contrast between the ignominious end of Absalom in a pit in the Transjordan, probably a pit unmarked that nobody ever remembered where it was, with his own self-perpetuating monument. Well, nobody will remember me unless I build my own monument before I die, and so that's what he does. Now, it's not on the Transjordanian side. It's on the Cisjordanian side. It's in the Valley of the Kings that he built it. And there's a tourist trap that claims that they know where Absalom's monument is, and they'll lead you to it there in in, uh, Israel today. But that's not where it was, so don't be fooled by that if you go to Israel But the point here is that Absalom's ego lives at the very end. Now, you might wonder about the detail. You know, he had no son. When if you go back to look at the list of uh, Absalom's uh, children, um, where is it? That is in chapter 15. Yes, chapter 14, verse 27, says he had three sons. You may wonder, well, he puts up this monument because he has no son, and yet chapter 14, 27 says he had three sons. What's going on here? Mistake in the Bible, mistake in the Bible. We finally found an error. All the liberals love this kind of stuff. It's, It's not too tough, is it? Art, why do you say it's not too tough? So? so that sounds like it could be, I have no son that will carry on my name, as if they had died. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the point. The three sons that are mentioned in chapter 14 probably died. They probably died in infancy or in their, in their youth. So they didn't live long enough to see daddy build his monument to himself and perpetuate his own name. All right, now let's step back a moment and ask ourselves, Why does Joab execute or dispatch Absalom? Why does he uh, support it? Why does he commission it? Uh, Why does he throw the darts himself? Um, Let's take a look at comparing the death of Absalom with the death of Uriah for illustrative purposes. Okay, he commanded the execution of Uriah. He dispatched Uriah on orders from King David. Correct? He followed the orders of the king. Here, he does what? He disobeys and rejects the orders of the king. So the comparison is a comparative antithesis. Here is Joab motivated in one instance to obey the king, but in this instance to disobey the king. And so we start to have our wheels turn again. We've got to try to fathom what it is that drives this man. 
In one case, Uriah, he's expendable. I'll listen to the king. Absalom, he's not expendable, says the king, but I won't listen to the king. All right, so here he dispatches uh, Absalom. But let's look at another incident. Let's take a look at Joab involved in the death of Abner. Hmm? Joab dispatches Abner, doesn't he? On orders from King David? No. There, too, he rejects the orders from King David. David has made a covenant with Abner. Abner is on his way out the door, out the door of Hebron, to bring the rest of Israel, the Transjordanian Israel, into David's camp, into alliance with David. He's on his way to enlarge and conciliate and pacify the division between Ishbosheth and David, and Joab murders him. Cold blood murders him. All right, you say, well, it was a blood feud for the death of his brother Asahel that he murdered Abner. Well, is this in chapter 18 a blood feud as well? Is Absalom expendable because Abner's nursing a grudge against him? He nursed a grudge against Abner. For killing his brother, is he nursing a grudge against Absalom? It doesn't seem to be apparent that that is the issue. But why play his key role in reconciling David and Absalom in 2 Samuel 14 if he executes him anyway in 2 Samuel 18? How do we fathom this man who seems to be a bundle of contradictions? What is it? What consistent thread drives Joab? Has he been driven to eliminate the rebel son in order to preserve the kingdom of David? In other words is what moves him the fact that David must be propped up, not this hot-headed, renegade brat. Well, we might say, maybe he killed Absalom because he's thirsty for power, and if he gets rid of Absalom, then he's that much closer to supreme power over David, even unseating David himself. And yet he never tries to do that. How many opportunities did he have? He's the commander of the army. He could have led a coup against David at virtually the drop of a hat. He has opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after he shows himself to be the strong man to his soldiers, whether it's with Uriah, whether it's with Abner, whether it's Absalom, he got military might, and even the soldier in this incident knows it. I know your character. I know you'd hang me out to dry. But he never lays his hand on David's throne. 
never tries to unseat him. At every point, he seems to maneuver to keep David in power and not put himself on the throne with a crown on his head. So what is it? What is it? Drives him to get rid of Absalom. You remember what Absalom did to Joab's fields? You remember when Absalom set Joab's fields on fire because Joab wouldn't get him an audience with David? He'd been back in Jerusalem for a while and David hadn't called him in. Even though Joab had maneuvered to get Absalom back from across the Jordan, he was in the Transjordan for three years in exile. Joab had maneuvered to get David to bring him back, but he wouldn't let Absalom go into the presence of the king. And so Absalom set fire to Joab's fields. Joab said, what would you do that for? Well, you wouldn't pay any attention to me, so I got your attention by firing your field. Now you're paying attention to me, aren't you? Now you're listening to me. I want I want to see my father. Now get me inside the door of the palace. Or I'm going to burn something else. So is Joab remembering that this hothead just simply cannot be trusted and cannot be controlled and realizes that if swinging between heaven and earth, he somehow survives. And David does treat him with mercy, as he did before, that Joab is once again going to be faced with this incorrigible rebel, this rebel with a cause, worse than James Dean ever was. Bad as James Dean was. This rebel is not going to be stopped until he's dead. And so he says, deal with him now rather than later. After all, he set fire to my fields. He tried to drive my king off of his throne. This kid isn't going to be stymied by anything short of being taken completely out of the picture. And I know enough about David that if he's not taken out of the picture, David's going to mope about him again. And so he's done. He's out of here. Put the contract out on him. And so he eliminates it. Well, you can turn around in your mind what it is that's the key to Joab's execution of Absalom But we're not done with the portrait of Joab yet. So you may want to suspend judgment about what it is that drives him at every point. A more consistent motivating thread that keeps Joab always doing what he's doing for consistent purposes. But wherever you conclude, Joab is the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. Joab is the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament, even as Absalom is the Antichrist. 
the anti-anointed of the Lord. David's downward spiral has been reversed in measure by his deliverance from Absalom's army. By the sovereign predestination and foreordination of God. But David himself, David himself will not let go of Absalom. And we'll return to this ambivalence of David next week and to his fawning fixation of self-pitying grief for this renegade son of his flesh.